the inside is right It's time to be stirred The time is now The winds have changed Read the signs No time to hide The winds have changed Millennia ago from the little cave on the tiny island of Podmos in the Aegean Sea, the heavens opened. Since then, the world has been fascinated by the cosmic upheaval brewing on the horizon of history. The upheaval is now upon us. It is within us. To some degree, it always has been. But there has been a sudden and violent shift in the affairs of the world. The winds have changed. Heaven will not be silent. Let's now join Father Anthony Bush, pastor of St. Stanislaus Koska, the Sanctuary of the Divine Mercy in Chicago, and author of A Mother's Plea, For the Winds Have Changed. Together we can pave the way for a hopeful response to the signs of our times. Hello, everyone. God bless you for tuning into The Winds of Change. Um, you got Father Coys here instead of Father Bush. We keep him in our prayers as always. And um, since today's Wednesday, you get uh, Father Coys' uh, Brain Wrinkling Wednesday. It actually happens to be Ash Wednesday today that we're recording this. And uh, you might be listening on another day. But the theme of Ash Wednesday is, is pertinent as always. And I want to start by sharing some thoughts that I was preparing for my for my sermon last Sunday, which was the last Sunday of ordinary time before Lent kicks in, but I couldn't share too much of it because we had to plug the um, the annual Catholic appeal. Every diocese uh, needs every every bishop's office needs money, and they they uh, they look at their parishes like I look at my parishioners. Can you? cough up, <laughs> and uh, except it's a little easier for a bishop to do because if a pastor says to his parishioners, can you contribute, um, He can. Th the people can either say, yes, here's something, or no, we can't, and that's where it kind of stops, and the pastor has to just sort of accept that as the case. Uh, a bishop, on, on the other hand, has the option of... Uh, Imposing taxes—it's <laughs> a little bit like um, a little bit like uh, regular government, as it were, because every, every pretty sure it's pretty universal. All dioceses with parishes um, tax uh, the bishops tax their their parishes. So, uh, in one sense, it's it's uh, it's a sort of a, I call it the cost of being Catholic, where you are. Um, connected to a larger church, where a lot of Protestant denominations don't have that kind of requirement, that kind of connection. They're more sui generis, as they say. That's a little Latin phrase for a class of its own, a, a genre of its own, a thing uh, which doesn't have peers, as it were. We're going to get to that, that um, theme a little bit later, too. Um, reminds me of something G.K. Chesterton says in his wonderful book on explaining his conversion to Catholicism. Anyways, the 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 gospel last Sunday, if you remember, was the leper, the leper that was cured by Jesus, the leper that says, "If you want to, you can cure me." I just just love that line. 
One of the key themes, however, that I think will be missed is the theme of the human will. If you want to, you can cure me. That was his, the leper's faith in Jesus was such that he saw Jesus as sort of superhuman, above human. He, he saw him as kind of a superman because we all know that human will doesn't always accomplish what it wills, right? That leper could have said that to almost anybody else. If you will, you can cure me. However, you wouldn't say that to just anyone else because you would know that would be a silly thing to say, right? Even, even to a doctor. If you will, you can cure me. We all dread those words of a doctor to us when a doctor says, there's nothing more I can do, right? Doctor will try and try all the, all the um, aspects of medicine. And uh, we hope and we pray that together with their wisdom and work and God's grace, we, we are cured. But we all know that even the greatest, holiest, smartest medical doctor uh, doesn't just will us to be cured. Uh, there, and I, I think we're living in, a, in an era in this modern world where we, we, we do not appreciate the power and the nature of the human will. We, on the one hand, we, we might be like the person who says, you can accomplish anything if you want it, right? You can, if you, if you will to uh, succeed in, in some form of a career or another, you will succeed. If you will to get up a little earlier in the morning, you will get up earlier in the morning. If you will to lose weight, you will lose weight. If you will to, if you will to uh, stop drinking, you will stop drinking. But I hope you're getting my point here because just in these examples, we know how silly that is. It doesn't work that way. And so part of our, part of the beauty of recognizing Jesus as superhuman, as better than us, as, as, a, as a being higher than us, is that if we could realize what the leper realized, that, that God, Jesus' divine will is higher, more powerful, and is different than our human will. It, and as I say, we live in a time when the concept of the human will is, is uh, misunderstood, not appreciated enough in, in so many different ways. The first and foremost, I have to confess, is the very idea of freedom of choice. When we say and we hear the word freedom of choice today, it means something completely different than it did 200 years ago or even 100 years ago. Um, to say freedom of choice today means I believe in the right to an abortion, plain and simple. It certainly didn't mean that before. We, we, want, we want freedom to choose and we think that if we have freedom to choose, we can choose 
anything we want. There, and there's a so, so that there's one aspect of the wrong appreciation of the doctrine of the human will, uh, which makes us think that we are divine, as it were, that whatever we will is is to be. And, and another obvious great example in our society today is the very common appreciation or acceptance of the transgender movement. If I will to be a different gender, then so be it. I, I have the right and people, people have the obligation to accept me in that willful desire of changing a gender. Uh, there, there's, a, there's a number of heresies associated with the human will, and they're, they're, they're difficult to appreciate, but let's review a little bit. One of, them, one of the heresies that has to do with Christology, with um, who Christ is, as a matter of fact, I want to bring this to your attention too because I was, I was just um, in a meeting and a representative of uh, the, um, a Catholic um, lay leadership school was telling us, a little group of priests, that, that in order to train and certify a lay minister for ministry in different parishes, different functions like a director of religious education or a youth minister or a pastoral associate or something like that, you get a certificate. And she was sharing with us priests, and I think perhaps many priests saw it as a good idea. I, uh, I, on, I on the other hand, uh, didn't like it, but she said, uh, we're not going to teach Christology classes to those uh, candidates for lay ministry, which I thought, not a good idea, because... Jesus is at the center of our faith, and it, it's she. She sort of was exhibiting a common, common problem that you can have that comes from a Protestant world mentality, namely, don't get hung up on the little works of all the theologians and saints of the past. Don't get worked up on. Christology and the heresies associated with Jesus, because what's really important is to love one another and be good, kind and tolerant, uh, uh, helpful as best we can. But to get tied up with the Christology questions is not so not so good these days. <laughs> I think it is good these days, and. Not that we get tied up in Christological questions, but that understanding the, the doctrines that have come down through the ages, we will be better equipped to be charitable and run organizations and programs in our, in our churches. One of those heresies has to do with the question of whether Jesus had a human will. It's, it's a bit of a tricky question because when we talk about Jesus and we say, did he have a divine nature and a human nature? Most, most of us would probably get that question right. Yes, he had a human nature and he had a divine nature. As we know, Jesus was both man and God. Uh, that's the first uh, 
that's getting to first base, shall we say, on getting to know who Jesus was. But getting a little deeper, then you might ask, uh, does, does Jesus have a human will? Or was his will just a divine will? And when you study this question, on the one hand, you might say, well, yeah, if he has a human nature, he's got to have a human will because human nature is composed of a human intellect and a human will. Human nature is composed of a body and a soul. So, But getting to the point of intellect and will, uh, we all know that we have an intellect and we have a will, or at least we we should know that. That's that that point is actually being kicked around and doubted in many different ways. We don't necessarily teach our children or anybody else that that fact about human nature. So if you if you hold on to that position, yes, human nature is composed of a human intellect and a human will. And then you compare it to Jesus, and Jesus has a divine intellect and a divine will. Uh, you should be able to get the answer right, and the orthodox answer to the question is, Jesus have a human will or a divine will, or only a divine will, or only a human will. You have to say he has both a divine will and a human will. And so in Jesus, they were synonymous. They were harmonious, except for a, a few certain instances. And when we look at the life of Jesus, where it seemed like his human will was at odds with his divine will, like in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? So why would that heresy have appeared? Why, why would people have started to say, no, Jesus, Jesus didn't have a human will? The reason it started appearing is because we all know Jesus is supposed to be not only our Savior, but he's supposed to be our example. We're, we're supposed to follow Jesus in being as good as Jesus was. And we all know that's pretty darn impossible or very, very difficult at, at the least, right? And so to give yourself an excuse that you're not as good as Jesus, it's a convenient doctrinal, philosophical, catechetical position to take to say that Jesus didn't have a human will. He only had a divine will. It's, it's kind of an excuse to say, well, he was God, so he knew as God knows, and he wills as God wills, and we know that God's will always accomplish what it wills. He doesn't have to struggle against uh against uh, things that are opposed to the divine will. But, of course, the whole story of Jesus being led into the desert for the temptations, which we're going to get on the first Sunday of Advent, uh, Advent of Lent, um, will tell us that position is also a heresy, that Jesus did have to struggle at times. Yet that struggle uh, was an indicative of his not having a human will, but that it was evidence that he had a, a human will. So um, where am I going with this in terms of the leper? The, the leper sees Jesus and the, he says, if you will, you can cure me. Uh, and, and, and some of us, 
in our society today, there, there is a faulty understanding of the human will. I'm going to say it this way. I think uh, a firm, authentic, orthodox Catholic who doesn't like falling into heresy will have to say something like this. Our human will is not like God's divine will in that it always accomplishes what it wills. And neither is it binary in the sense that I either want this or don't want this. I either want to follow God or I don't want to follow God. I either want heaven or I want hell. I think a very important appreciation of what the human will is today is that we see the human will as a kind of a sliding scale nature to it. We all know what scales are, or I'm looking at my soundboard here, and many people who know what soundboards are is we have little uh, dials that go up and down. There's you go to the max or you go to the mi the minimal. Same kind of thing happens on on a in a car when you're turning on the heat, right, or the air conditioning. You can put it on max or minimal. There is a sliding scale to such instruments. It could be a little bit or a lot. What I'm saying to you is that we're living in an age when we've lost the the real concept of the human will as a sliding scale. What I mean by that is we should appreciate the fact that when we say, I want something, you could sort of want it a little bit or you can want it a lot. We all could say, I want to follow God, but give me different circumstances and I'm going to say, well, maybe not today so much or not. Um, I want, I don't want to sin, but we then do sin, uh, etc. right? We could see how there's a sliding scale. That's why you've heard me talk about this before. And, and as we enter into the season of Lent, I hope people do uh, think about the sacrament of confession. And uh, I, I, I sense in the new translation of the act of contrition this subtle mistake, a mistaken understanding of the human will. Because in the new translation of the act of contrition, we're teaching children to say, in the old, old act of contrition, probably most of my listeners will probably know the old translation or the old version of the act of contrition. Oh my God, I am heartily sorry for having offended thee. And I detest all my sins, etc., etc. The new act of contrition, which is being taught today, goes, my God, I'm sorry for choosing to do wrong and failing to do good. Every time I hear that, choosing to do wrong and failing to do good, I sense this poor understanding of the human will. If I, I only am sorry for sins if I choose to do wrong. And here comes the complicated part. How much did you choose to do wrong? It's not just a, I chose it or I didn't chose it. It, it too often is the case of external influences influencing our our will, our willpower. I guess that's why, that's why it's good to call it our willpower because we all know that power has 
uh, fluctuating nature, right? Something's very powerful or a little powerful. Something's right in the right balanced power, like like electricity or like your heating in your car. You get it just right, so to speak. Okay, well, um, I that's a long introduction to something else I want to get to. Let me. Well, after this break, I want to share with you a interesting, a wonderful, a wonderful, interesting, enigmatic Protestant preacher of the early century of the 1800s um, who was preaching on the gospel of the leper. And he gets so many things right. He gets so many, it's very, I think, right on target the way he's preaching to his people. But he he has to flow into the common Protestant attack of Catholics. <laughs> so we got we to gotta, uh, investigate C.H. Spurgeon, Guy from um, from England, actually, but was popular in the United States too. Okay, so let's take our quick break. I am Father Tom Coyce. This is AM seven fifty. You're listening to the Winds of Change. How long has it been since you have been to church? Busy schedule, work, or just lost interest? To be Catholic is not just merely attending mass as just another weekend activity to be checked off the to do list. Participation in the sacred liturgy gives you the opportunity to be intimately connected to Christ through the Holy Eucharist. You can also cleanse yourself of sin through the Sacrament of Reconciliation as a baptized Catholic. Come before the iconic monstrance to be in Christ's presence in the sacred silence of the Sanctuary of the Divine Mercy. St. Stanislaus Koska Church is open 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. St. Stan's is just off the Kennedy, two blocks north of Division on Noble. Come back to Christ through the sacred liturgy and his gift of the sacraments at St. Stan's. I'm Father Tom Coyes, and you are listening to the Winds of Change. I'd like to suggest the most important thing you can partake of this Lent. I'm referring to that which contains the whole spiritual good of the church. Yes, your entire spiritual good. Listen to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, 1324. The Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life. The other sacraments, and indeed all ecclesiastical ministries and works of the apostolate, are bound up with the Eucharist and are oriented toward it. For in the blessed Eucharist is contained the whole spiritual good of the Church, namely Christ himself, our posh, end quote. Jesus himself longingly awaits you daily in Holy Mass and in the Monstrance or Tabernacle. I'm Jim Littleton, forming FaithfulFamilies.com. Hey, welcome back. All good to hear Jim Littleton's voice there on that last little clip. Um, uh, friend of uh, my little parish and... Um, uh, great uh, podcaster of his own. Keep him in your prayers. He, he always struggles with them. Um, he had cancer, um, and he beat it in a good way, and he wrote a book called Cured by Cancer, <laughs> cured of his non-supernatural outlook on life. That's, that's a good thing to consider. Anyways, okay, so um, going into Lent, I'm, I'm taking off from last Sunday's gospel about the leper 
who says to Jesus, if you will, you, if you will, you can cure me. Jesus says, of course I will too, and he cures him. So, uh, in in my little research, I often like to see what other preachers have to say about Gospels before I preach what I want to say. <laughs> and a lot of times I, I stumble on uh, certain Protestant ministers who read the same Bible pretty much as I do. And they come up with uh, a lot of good points, of course. Sometimes I steal them, sometimes I don't. Well, borrow, I guess you could say, better than steal. But uh, there, there was one I stumbled on. And I didn't know this uh, guy before. Um, I, I often listen to Protestant ministers who are still alive and, and preaching, especially I like to focus on those, those ministers who are pastors of those megachurches that are popular today. Um, so, but this guy, is, there's a, there was a preacher by the name of C.H. Spurgeon, S-P-U-R-G-E-O-N, Interesting character. Didn't know much about him, but uh, he is—he was very famous back in the 1700s, or no, 1800s, uh, in England. And I guess he made some trips to the United States because he was popular here in the United States as well. And of course, they didn't have TV or radio so much then. Uh, anyways, he was a kind of fire and brimstone Protestant preacher, uh, and would. Uh, let his audiences, his congregations, know in no uncertain terms that they may be headed to hell unless they turn their life around. You know, and, and in that sense, uh, in that sense, I, I'm, I'm sort of drawn to him in the sense that uh, in our world today, we we don't get much of that and. Those people who are a bit more traditional-minded, conservative Catholics, we sometimes lament the fact that um, there is no hellfire and brimstone. Uh, my, I, I'm going to have to say to say to you, my listeners, and maybe confess to myself, I I don't have so much a hellfire and brimstone style of yelling and screaming and directly telling people you're going to hell, but I I do try to express the sinful nature of things that are going on today that are not recognized as sinful. Uh, and we, we have to turn away from those sinful ways, get back to God, uh, and especially those issues that have to do with life, family, purity, uh, um, charity, good cooperation, as it were, in, in things that are developing uh, a better society, a more godly society, okay? So anyways, interesting to note in my little research about this C.H. Spurgeon, he he was that kind of a hellfire and brimstone preacher, and he did convert a lot of people, praise the Lord, as we say. Interesting about him is that he suffered depression quite a bit. He... he uh, he preached about depression. He wrote about it. He tried to console people about it. He tried to give people um, hints at how to fight depression, as it were. I can't help but think, too, in comparing to him, comparing him to uh, G.K. Chesterton, who certainly was no uh, progressive, liberal-minded theologian. He was... He, he 
embrace Catholicism with its more radically strict and more radically uh, difficult habits and, and life to, to, live, to live by, the, the rules to live by. Uh, but he, being Chesterton, didn't suffer from depression at all. He, he, he had a very happy outlook on life, and that to his credit, because I think because his Catholicism had had what it takes to balance off a hellfire and brimstone attitude about sin. Yes, sin is destroying society. Sin is distress, destroying our families. Sin is destroying our personal equilibrium, our peace. Um, and so we got to be very, very upset about it. And yet, and yet, there's something called God's grace. There's something called conversion. There's something called happiness and joy uh, in knowing in knowing God has showered us with His graces, redeemed us by His cross, and and all the rest. And so I I think you could almost blame uh, C. H. Spurgeon's lack of the full view of Catholicism to his depression. That that might even help one and all today. So. Um, anyways, he's talking about the, the 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 leper, and he wisely points out that the the the, the evil disease, the the ugly disease of leprosy, um, with its with its power to destroy people's bodies, is a good analogy about how sin destroys our spiritual souls, our spiritual life. And he even makes one of the wonderful points he makes is something I actually heard um, Bishop Barron in his sermon on the leper make as well, is that le lepers had to live in leper colonies, so they hung around other sick people. We all know the, about the story of St. Damien from uh, Molokai, Hawaii, who lived with the lepers. But anyways, even back in biblical times, Lepers had to live in separated areas, separated from uh, healthy people. And so being around other sick people makes you sicker. And C.H. Spurgeon rightly and wisely warns us that that symbol, symbolism of leprosy for our spiritual soul means that if you separate yourself from good people, you're going to be more influenced by bad people. Those who separate themselves from the community of the church are not going to have the community of good people uh, helping them steer the course through life. And so that, that was a very wise and good point. However, and he, he has to sneak in this. This is what I want to share with you today and be, be watchful about this uh, fellow Catholics, and those of you who may be listening who are not Catholic, this is a, an easy mistake to make. Catholics make it, but it's um, a very strong Protestant mistake. Here's how he goes. Let's see if I can get this um, to play. Let's see. And renewal. Accept him even now. Now let me go a step further. This man's faith had respect to a real matter-of-fact cure. 
He did not think of the Lord Jesus Christ as a priest who would perform certain ceremonies over him and formally say, Thou art clean, for that would not have been true. He wanted really to be delivered from the leprosy, to have those dry scales into which his skin kept turning, taken all away, that his flesh might become as the flesh of a little child. He wanted that the rottenness which was eating up his body should be stayed and that health should be actually restored. I'm going to stop it there for, did you, this isn't the major problem of his, but I, I would, I would add, as he says, the leper wasn't looking at Jesus as a priest who was going to perform certain rituals over him. Yeah, of course he, his main concern was to get healed, but that Jesus was known as a rabbi and that Jesus was a member of the Jewish society made him a religious figure. In other words, the C.H. Spurgeon, as, as many others who are going to try to criticize some things Catholic, are going to have to point out that, that uh, oh, the fact that he wasn't looking for a priest doesn't mean that the priesthood is irrelevant or the, the church, the official institution of the church, is irrelevant. The desire to be cured of leprosy, it wouldn't have mattered one way or another. If he, if he was a religious figure and he could cure me, I'll accept him as a religious figure. If he's not a religious figure and he can cure me, I'll accept the fact that he's not a religious figure. Of course, we know Jesus was a religious figure. He's <laughs> the religious figure. So... Uh, but what Spurgeon is doing is he's warming up for his, uh, I'll say, kill shot <laughs> to Catholicism. Let's see, go on a little bit more here. Friends, it is easy enough to believe in a mere priestly absolution if you have enough credulity. But we need more than this. It is very easy to believe in baptismal regeneration. But what is the good of it? What practical result does it produce? A child remains the same after it has been baptismally regenerated as it was before, and it grows up to prove it. So he takes a pot shot at sacramental confession and sacramental baptism by, by saying, if you're, it's easy to believe in that sacramental absolution if you believe in it, <laughs> which is a strange kind of argument, right? In philosophy, we call that a tautology. Um, you're, you're assuming what you're trying to prove. Um, and uh, so he's, 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 he's acting and he's talking out of a very common skepticism that we all have. Even us Catholics who use the sacrament of Reconciliation, sacrament of penance, going to confession. We know that it's an external uh, ritual act that we do. Um, and we all can accuse ourselves and especially others of misusing it, right? You can go to confession. Um, the, the typical problem that we can um, probably relate to is I could sin on Thursday because on Friday I know I'm going to go to confession. 
I know my sin's going to be wiped away, so might as well uh, do the sin while while I I know I'll be I'll be able to be forgiven for it. That's abusing the sacrament. So Spurgeon, like so many Protestants, uh, were criticizing the sacrament of penance. As well as baptism, notice he throws in the sacrament of baptism. What good is water baptism if, uh, it, you know, what good does it do? He's making another fundamental Protestant mistake, which Catholics make as well, is that uh, the primary essence of the baptismal water is to turn a bad person to a good person. It's a conversion. It's... It's mistaking the distinction that St. John the Baptist made so clear when he said, I baptize you with water and uh, a spirit of repentance. The one who comes after me will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so Spurgeon would be criticizing Catholic baptism uh, because each baby, when they grow up, doesn't turn out to be a saint. So therefore, the baptism was worthless or it didn't didn't do what it said it was supposed to do, supposed to make you into child of God, but you're a child of the devil now, <laughs> one way or another. So uh, these are the kind of criticisms that come uh, towards Catholicism. But I have to explain why I, I, I see them as, as um, detrimental. Should we take our another break there, uh, Armand? Or maybe it's Daniel who's at the boards today. We have a, another... Good man uh, helping us here at the beautiful station of the winds of change. Let's let's take that uh, next break, and I'll come back, and I want to try to unravel the, the the mistake that this Spurgeon's preacher, very popular preacher, is is making, and then us Catholics can make just as easily. Anyways, okay. So I'm Father Tom Coys. You are listening to the Winds of Change. We are AM seven fifty WNDZ. Saint Stanislaus Koska. The Sanctuary of the Divine Mercy is open 24 hours a day, seven days per week for adoration of the Blessed Sacrament in the iconic monstrance. The Blessed Sacrament is reposed during the celebration of Mass and during special events. St. Stan's doors are always open for adoration. Come anytime, day or night. St. Stan's is located two blocks north of Division on Noble, right off the Kennedy. Visit ststandschurch.org. We are the students of St. Stan's La Cosca Academy. Your children can join them for face-to-face classroom instruction. Visit ststandschicago.org to find out how. And you're listening to the Winds of Change. St. Stanislaus Koska Academy. St. Stan's is an exceptional private elementary school in Chicago, serving preschool, age three and four, pre-kindergarten, kindergarten, and first grades. We incorporate Catholic values and rigorous academic, social-emotional learning, Chinese, Spanish, STEM, and more, providing our students with leadership and life skills to transform our world. St. Stanislaus Koska Academy is conveniently located one block north of Division on Noble, just off the Kennedy Expressway. To schedule your tour, visit ststandschicago.org, ststandschicago.org. 
Hello, welcome back. I'm Father Tom Coyce. This is The Winds of Change. I'm hoping to wrinkle your brain here a little bit. I'm wrestling with the the the, the theory, the, the spirit of Lent that we're jumping into today and trying to expose a, a typical problem that I saw in, in listening to a, a sermon by a 18th, 19th century um, British Protestant preacher, and he was he was criticizing the the um, Catholic position, though he doesn't call it that. But he says it's easy enough to believe in sacramental absolution if you are credulous, if you are believable, if you believe it. I would say believing in absolution that we receive in sacraments is one of the hardest things to believe in even for those who have lots of faith. Again, going back to what I said at the beginning of the hour about the fluctuating nature of our will. Uh, our will, our wills are not just binary, on and off. Um, we're, we're tricked into thinking that way because we, we tend to preach that way to our children in some way, or, or bosses tend to command their workers in that way to a lot of extent. You better do this. Um, uh, a parent who's frustrated with their child who's doing bad in math, you say, you just got to want to get a better grade. <laughs> and uh, that's not a very effective way of being uh, a parent at that, that point because I, I picked on the topic of math math class because a lot of people, a lot of us know that math is pretty darn challenging even even um, when you don't, when you will to be good at math, it just doesn't happen. So there's this uh, um, poor, we'll call it anthropology that's operating in our church and our society today. I made reference to my dislike of the new act of contrition that says, um, uh, and I'm sorry for having, for choosing to do wrong and failing to do good. The example I like to ask people about when that question comes up is, is uh, your typical, let's say, seventh grade boy or girl, and they go to confession and they say they fought with their brothers and sisters, they were mean and nasty, or they didn't do this or that, or they did do that and this but they, they don't confess the fact that they miss church on Sunday. I, as the priest, often ask them, did you miss church on Sunday? And I'm going to say nine out of ten times, they'll say, well, yes, I did miss church. But they, it's not in their mind as a sin that needs to be confessed. <clears throat> they're, they're not, it's not on the radar screen because, and I mean because they, in their mind, they didn't choose wrong in missing Mass. Because the reason they miss Mass is because they had to go to practice or a game or with their, they were sort of being obedient to another loyalty. So often uh, children, and, and it happens as, as people get older, right? But so often they, people will, you know, you'll say, if you ask that seventh grader, uh, why did you miss Mass? And you say, well, I had a game. Well, in their mind, 
they had a loyalty to the team as much as a loyalty to church, probably, and in their mind, a greater loyalty to the church. It's a, it's a battle between what is your highest loyalty. Team members and coaches, even Catholic coaches, will will constantly say, "You have to. You made a commitment to this team. You better be on. You better be there at the practice or at the game." I've heard it a number of times. Hey, this game Sunday is for the championship. You can't miss it. So when that young person uh, chooses to go to the game, he's choosing to do right. He's choosing to do what's what he thinks is his responsibility. He's not choosing to miss Mass, but he does miss Mass. And so, again, the, um, the pressure between loyalties creates this fluctuating circumstance in life, not only just of a seventh grade basketball player or whoever, but all of us. There's, um, I'm pulled in this direction, I'm pulled in that direction. And uh, that, way, that way our will is, is not just, um, shall we say, binary. We're, I think we're teaching the wrong lesson to our children when we, when we teach them that you're only, you should only be sorry when you choose to uh, do wrong. Because a lot of times uh, it's not as clear-cut as that. Choosing to do wrong and failing to do good. Now, is it true that missing church was failing to do something good? Yes. Um, but why are so many children today not confessing missing church, even though they miss church a lot? Because they don't see it as as a sin that needs intellectually, if they were making a putting an answer down on a piece of paper on a test and saying, "Is missing church a sin?" They would say yes, but in their mind, in the practical level, they will not confess it because it doesn't register as something wrong because they're doing something right, and we all know that you can't do everything, so you got to pick and choose, right? So, okay, I want to segue from uh, this Spurgeon, <laughs> the uh, 18th century um, Protestant English surgeon, uh, 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 preacher, to a movie that I recently watched. Um, maybe you know it. It's from the 60s called The Cardinal. And The Cardinal uh, is, is, a, is a based on a novel by the same name. But it's based on on the, the life of Cardinal Spellman, at least that's, um, it's not an exact documentary on Spellman, but it's about a young man who, uh, an Irish uh, man from Boston, Massachusetts, who wants to become a priest, and uh, he goes to study, and he's real smart, and he gets promoted, and he gets sent off to to um, Rome to study there. He may meet some good uh, bishops and makes friends with some cardinals. He eventually becomes a, a bishop himself and he eventually becomes the famous Cardinal Spellman of New York, who was a uh, friend and somewhat friend and enemy of a lot of different big name folks. Um, in the, um, uh, he, he kind of was in the height of his life during World World War One, and in between the wars and World War Two, he just dies right in 1946, right 
Oh, no, no, he died in 1967. He was at the Second Vatican Council, Cardinal Spellman was. He became a cardinal right after World War II. Um, the movie portrays him as this upwardly mobile cleric. Uh, as a matter of fact, one of his bishops sees that he's too upwardly ambitious and wants to try to humble him, so he, he sends him to the poorest parish uh, in the, mass, the Boston Diocese, uh, serving these Italian immigrants who had no money and um, was a, I forget what um, <laughs> what industry the town had, uh, but anyways, they um, they uh, it, it was a humbling spirit, and he meets a a precious Irish priest who was bad at financing, and uh, but was had a loving heart for the people. Anyways, that does soften up the main figure played by, let's see, Tom Tyrone uh, was the actor who played the, the cardinal. So anyways, um, you know what? We're running more quickly out of time. I think I think my producer would like to get in our third break. I'll, I'll try to wrap this up or at least point this in the right direction because as always, one hour is not enough. Um, let's, let's take our third break break here, and I'll share with you this interesting um, tidbit from a very wonderful movie. I, I recommend it, The Cardinal. Uh, and, uh, okay, so I'm Father Tom Coyes. You're listening to The Winds of Change. We are at AM 750. Sometimes it's tough to hear winds of change over the air. What with tall buildings, power lines, and other static... Now, you can hear Winds of Change anywhere, anytime, or on any device. When Winds of Change is on the air, live, Monday through Friday, noon to one, go to ststandschurch.org. Scroll down to the Winds of Change tile and click on the Listen Live button. For Winds of Change podcasts, click on Listen to Episodes or visit the Winds of Change Facebook page. I'm Father Tom Coyes, and you are listening to The Winds of Change. St. Stanislaus Koska, the Sanctuary of the Divine Mercy, is open 24 hours a day, seven days per week, for adoration of the Blessed Sacrament in the iconic monstrance. The Blessed Sacrament is reposed during the celebration of Mass and during special events. St. Stan's doors are always open for adoration. Come anytime, day or night. St. Stan's is located two blocks north of Division on Noble, right off the Kennedy. Visit ststanschurch.org. Hey, welcome back, everyone. Father Coy's here. There we go. Let's see. How's that? Um, okay, before turning to the very interesting movie, The Cardinal, i got to wrap up this, uh, this thought about... Uh, uh, the error that this minister, C.H. Uh, Spurgeon, makes when he criticizes this um, uh, Catholic uh, characteristic of sacraments, he says, "We all know that you can, you can, um, you can, you can go to confession and it means nothing." He's obviously well aware that many Catholics go to confession and they don't change their lives, right? That's one of the main arguments that Protestants have for Catholic sacramental confession. It doesn't change you. Um, I would maintain, 
Oh, it does, and it, it can. Is it? Is it? Is it automatic? No. Does it? Uh, can it? Can it fail? Yes. But should you throw it away because it doesn't work? Absolutely not, um, because it does affect us in, in so many so many ways. There is that inner and outer. I'll just summarize it by saying that those who would reject sacramental confession or sacramental baptism or sacramental matrimony, uh, all the sacramental life that we, us Catholics, hold dear, by throwing it out, you really are throwing out the baby with the bathwater, or you're you're destroying the foundation of a building because the foundation isn't the penthouse. <laughs> uh, you can't have a building with offices uh, above the foundation um, by by destroying the foundation. It's it's a start. It's it's a, often a necessary start. <clears throat> And I heard, I heard a, a strong, traditional Catholic guy make the same mistake as the Protestant minister was making, but from a different angle. He he was complaining about his wife, and he said he had to reprimand his wife because she she went to confession and she. She first to apologize. They had a fight. I can't even remember what exactly the fight was about, but they had a spat between husband and wife. The wife apologized to her husband. As a matter of fact, when she related me the story, she, she apologized to her husband because she didn't want to imitate the same mistake that he does. She said, I don't want to stoop as low as he does when, when he makes mistake. He'll never apologize. But I recognized I made somewhat of a mistake, <laughs> somewhat, and I apologized. And then I went to confession, and then I went to communion. And so he attacks her for receiving communion because he says that confession was worthless. So you see how that's a parallel to the Protestant era. Um, He's saying, well, I didn't see you change. Uh, you shouldn't have taken communion because your your confession was useless or invalid. Now, the mistake that he's making, which we all have to be appreciative of, is he's not taking into consideration a very no another very important point about our sacrament of penance, um, which accepts the idea of perfect contrition versus imperfect contrition. Again, we could we could bring back that analogy of the scale, the sliding scale. Um, perfect contrition is is rarely achieved for most of us. Um, and even toward the end of life, one of the diminishing factors of perfect contrition is you confess because you're afraid of hell. And and confessing because you're afraid of hell is a good reason for confessing our sins. As a matter of fact, and this, this little aspect is attacked today in 
modern sacramental theology as well, because a lot of the act of contritions leave out that phrase, um, um, fear of fear of hell. And so uh, you don't, if you're not, the, the reformers of Vatican II were sort of cognizant that confessing our sins because we're afraid of hell is not the perfect reason for confessing our sins. But the mistake that the modern sacramental theologians made is the same mistake that this uh, uh, Protestant made back in the 1800s. In other words, okay, true enough that fear of hell is not the best reason, but it's a good reason. It's not perfect contrition, but it's contrition. And that's why this, this guy who was upset at his wife for going to communion after an invalid sacrament is really, really uh, denying the grace of, of the sacrament, which helps us along the way. There's an incremental, uh, did you maybe have some Misgivings, or maybe maybe she wasn't as sorry as she should have been. But by no means should you um, criticize someone. Uh, uh, There may be something more going on than we realize. Um, As a priest confessor, I think I I would have more insight into the sincerity of that person's confession, right? If I'm the priest and the person says, um, I'm committing this sin, uh, and uh, let us say, oh, are, you, are you sorry? And they say, no, I'm not. Then I, as a priest, can even say, well, then I can't give you absolution. You have to be at least somewhat sorry. So let us say we have that little argument in the confessional, and I ask the person, are you going to at least try not to sin again? Can you see that it's wrong? And then they come up for communion. I might have to um, say, let's get back into that other sacrament over there. (laughs) Anyways, boy, I didn't get to the movie The Cardinal. So there's your homework. Look up the movie The Cardinal and watch it raw. We'll have more interesting things to say about that as it leads to a deeper and a better spiritual life for all of us. I'm Father Tom Coyce. You've been listening to The Winds of Change. We are... AM 750 WNDZ What's there to say When the world makes no sense Do we search deeper truths Or sit on the fence Can you see 